Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. My name is Mike Erie. I'm here with my friend, cohort, brother in arms, comrade in battle, Timothy John Stafford. Whoa. Whoa. We Whoa. are delighted that you are tuning in today. We've got uh, we've got some we've got some things for you. First, some housekeeping. housekeeping. Timothy. Yep, housekeeping. Number one, I want to thank Jennifer Trenton and Karen because they yeah. came on the Patreon team. And so, wow, and thank you. And you all, I'm learning the Southern phrase, you all are amazing. This whole like community is amazing. You know on old radio shows, they had the guy with the keyboard that like, oh yeah, whenever you, it had the sound oh, yeah. effects. Yeah, like you, we need, we like need the, one of those. Yeah, the Owen Wilson going like, wow. <laughs> or like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, so thank you guys very much. And if you want to join us, go to patreon.com and you can um, type in Voxology Podcast and find us there. And um, and then and someone the emailed notes. in. Yeah, and show notes. Absolutely. And someone emailed in and said, hey, is, I don't want to do Patreon. I'm going to do something else. And so oh, there's, yeah. there's a Tithely link, but it's not on the Voxology Podcast. So you have to go to Tithely. And it's literally tithe.ly and type in Vox Christian Community, and that's how you find us there. Yeah. Um, and but you have to make it easier. Yeah, we do have to make that easier. So, but anyway, that's how you find us. So, thank you very much. Um, secondly, we're going to send out a survey here in the next couple of weeks, and we need email addresses. Now, right. people have emailed us their email addresses, or they've asked for a link to the survey on Facebook. But the most helpful thing, the most Jesus-honoring, helpful thing would be to, <laughs> right now, go on your mobile device, go to voxologypodcast.com, and at the very end, just put your email in there. We're not going to spam you. Um, what what we're going to do is we are we're, we carry a bunch of assumptions about our audience after six years into our conversations, and we want to check those against reality. And we're yeah. very curious about some things um, uh, uh, that um, we're thinking about, sort of exploring. And this this would it would be a great gift uh, if you'd be willing to do that. I know it's it's a bit of a pain, but it would be a great. So I'll gift put that in the show it. notes too, where you can go to the website and sign up. Yeah, why don't we put that on Facebook? Why yeah. don't we put that on all the socials? Just you know, that would be great. Thank you, Timothy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Um, Seth Theory at school today, <sighs> fired up. He um, he. Uh, was bummed that he was not going to star on the Voxology podcast, but he made sure that we were going to talk about his life. Okay. He said, Daddy, talk about my life? I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so Seth is hitting puberty, and that is just a whole bunch of new conversations around the house for us. I'm going to stop it right there. That is the Seth update. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, a couple of things um, after housekeeping. 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 Today, we have a, a really fun interview that I've been looking forward to. So, so Gombus, Tim Gombus is our friend. <laughs> oh, and, Tim um, Gombus. Oh, Tim. Um, he recommended, man, last April, a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And it's written by an historian who shows how our concepts of biblical womanhood is nothing more than just cultural readings placed upon the Bible. 
Yeah. And, and what's, it the, is, what's the subtitle? Uh, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Yes. Right. And and how, I mean, it's it's a doozy. And and she is so humble. She includes so much of her own story and struggle in this in this book. And so we have been trying to get her on the show uh, since Gambas first told her about it. And today we did it, Timothy. That's right. And I, I and I want to remind people about why we care so much about this topic. If you've been a listener, um, this is a topic we revisit: the idea of women in leadership and the women being women being freed in all areas of of leadership and giftedness in the church and outside of the church. And the reason it's been very important um, to us, well, for me, I grew up um, in a in conservative environment where. Um, you know, male headship was taught, modeled. Men were the spiritual leaders of the household. I was involved yes. in campus ministries where, you know, if you were in a dating relationship, the man always initiated, the man defined the relationship, the man, you know, de- declared the sexual boundaries. It was up to the man to kind of initiate and the Just woman's poisonous job. on both yeah, Science. the woman's job was to respond. Yeah, um, I was in marital counseling where my role was the spiritual leader of the house, and I mean, yep. and, and and it's just it's just jam packed. And then you take this into church. Women are not allowed to preach, but they're gifted. But so we'll let them teach or share um, or go on the mission field and do this. But yeah. you know, we won't let it happen yeah. here. And, you can and, preach overseas. Yes, exactly. With those with the the people that aren't us. Um, and, and I gradually, I was in churches where I was, and I was leading where I was uncomfortable with that status quo, but I didn't have, I wasn't just aware of biblical scholarship that, that took those passages like in Timothy or in first Corinthians, um, that took them very seriously, but then also showed, well, that's not the only way to read them, let alone maybe the best way to read them. And it wasn't until I was pastoring a church and they did not allow women to serve communion. And I just asked the board of elders, okay, show me the verse where women can't serve communion. And you know, and their answer was very honest and they were very gracious. They just said, well, it's probably more just a cultural thing than anything else. Oof. And, um, and, and you just realize, oh, well, I think... So, so this... This idea that there is no such thing as biblical manhood or womanhood, and that those those are you can trace it historically. Those are constructs read into the text, used and weaponized in culture war. It is awful. It is horrific, and we, I, I and we want to stand just against all of that horse crap because it's not true. It's just not true. One of the biggest things. Um, uh, was learning that Proverbs 31, you know, the Proverbs 31 woman? Yeah. All the feminine imagery, I- imagery in Proverbs, whether the adulteress or the faithful spouse, all of that's concerning wisdom or foolishness. Right. You know, it's never about wives and <laughs> faithful ones versus non faithful ones. And so there was this Proverbs 31 woman, that ideal that was held up, you know, when I was younger. And, and you realize, oh, that's just so not it. Um, and so, anyway, there have been a, um, a, um, several books. Uh, Amy Bird has come up with a book called Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Right. Um, Kristen Dumay has written a book called Jesus and John Wayne that shows how mass, that biblical masculinity is just a construct. And then this book, 
um, is really showing how biblical womanhood is just a construct that you can yeah. that it's just it, it's just another way of reflecting the same old patriarchy that has been true in human history. Now we've Christianized it and made it a gospel issue, and so it's a really good book. But she yeah. turns out to be. Like like our friend Amy Jill Levine, just yes. a dynamo, yeah, and um, and such a fun interview. So I would encourage you, even if you're somebody who holds what we would call a complementarian perspective, which is the, that women uh, there are certain that women are equal, but they don't have the same sort of function in the church that they're right. gifted differently and called differently, and than men. There's still some good stuff here that I think we need to wrestle with. And if you're a young lady who is somebody who has been taught um, this sort of ideal, the Proverbs 31 or the gentle, quiet spirit or the, you know, your job is to respond and kind of keep the home and that's biblical, um, you're really going to, there's some stuff to chew on here. If you don't, I would encourage everybody to read the book, but if at least listen to this and um and take seriously what she says because again she was somebody who changed her mind just like i did we were yeah. she and i were both raised in very similar environments and you later come to realize oh and that's not an issue to me of deconstructing at all that's an issue of more faithful discipleship absolutely um this is not you know to me this is not taking the bible less seriously it's taking the bible more seriously as yeah. we've been talking about the whole way yeah. so for all those reasons um, it was just great to have her on. Tim, what did you think of uh, our conversation with her? I loved it. This has become a deal breaker issue for me, and we're not attending a church right now, any church, because I can't, I can't reconcile this theology anymore. So, and what I thought was really interesting is that she mentioned that the thing that spurred her, that started this process, was being in a really rigid church. And that kind of like sparked her pursuit of kind of digging at this stuff. And I was thinking about that because, you know, I've referenced a conversation I had recently with a church um, trying to figure out where they were with this topic. And it's it's that line of like, oh, you know, well, women serve in this capacity and, we, and women serve in this capacity. And, you know, they, we, we don't call them pastors, but they, you know, definitely they, they teach right. the kids and they lead the women's Bible studies and they're deacons and da, 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 da. But no woman will ever preach from the, no woman will ever preach. Right. And I'm just right. like, I, but they build a structure that kind of like keeps everything kind of in the fog. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you, if you really push me on the topic, no, women are not equal. But, you right. know, we, there's all these kind of things that kind of yeah. keep people happy. And yeah. that is gross. And so I can see how a rigid system could help spur. Yeah, because she mentions that she, if if she would have been in a more complementarian church where they were women were still serving, it would have been harder for her to have started that journey. Yeah, um, and two, I think that I grew up, I grew up in a similar church, obviously where women weren't allowed to preach or whatever. But my faith really like started to become an actual thing when I was in Young Life, and Young Life, even though on paper they won't you know they will hold the same line as all this other stuff the particular one that i was in women were teaching and mm. so i just as i began to understand who god was women were a huge part of that so yeah. it just kind of made the field I, I it just never made sense after that 
Yeah. And mo- I think almost the most wise people in my life have been women. So to say, hey, <laughs> you're, right. you're one of the smartest people I know and you carry so much wisdom. However, your lack of a penis is going to, you're going to have to, you're going to have to take a back seat is just yeah. ridiculous. And the third thing is, you know, she mentions her daughter, but me thinking about, you know, my little five-year-old hurricane, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Come on. I can't like I'm trying to raise her to not to not break that spirit in her in life to put her in a church setting and then tell her that she's less than it's just stupid and I won't yeah. do it. I don't I won't I don't want her to I don't want her to grow up think her thinking that God thinks that she can't mm-hmm. that God thinks that she's less that mm-hmm. just pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah. And as somebody who has a 16 year old who. Uh, daughter, um, let me just tell you that that battle is so worth fighting. Yeah. Um, to go, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I'm only working at a church that would, that has a, a woman elder, uh, soon to have two, and uh, a woman, um, female teaching pastor. So I'm, I'm just completely with you on this. Um, but you know, and and, it, and it's okay that that other people are other places because we were, yeah. Um, but I tell you what, man, daughters, boy, that that changes the equation. <laughs> so you to know? wives too, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want my wife. She's one of the smartest people I know. So to say that she, yeah. and one of the best leaders I know, to tell her that she couldn't lead, that's just, yeah. I don't know. I, so it just good, doesn't dude. reconcile. So anyway, it's in that. Um, kind of tone that we recommend <laughs> this episode and this interview and this book. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, uh, no, I love it, man. Absolutely. This is, this is worth being emotional about the amount yeah. of harm. Um, and off air, she referenced a, um, a study and I think I've read it, but I don't know anything about it, but she referenced it. Just a study that was correlating willingness to stay in abusive marriages Yes, is much yes. higher in religiously conservative. Um, I just I, how do you how do you reconcile that to Jesus? I just can't. It's so yeah. hard when we talk about that. There's some stuff in there with race and with gender and different things, and it makes Christianity sound evil. And yeah. that's like it's that that's a bummer that that's kind yeah. of where we've landed. Yeah, 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 totally. So anyway, hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, you guys are amazing, and we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. So give us a shout out if you would. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Hey, everybody. We're so glad you're with us today. Uh, finally. We have a guest that we have been um, looking forward to talking with, uh, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who is at Baylor University and has written a book that has sent uh, pretty substantial ripples through the evangelical community about a topic that we care about, which is um, seeing uh, women released into full leadership and gifting capacities all throughout the church and culture. Um, and she wrote a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And 
Tim, our friend Tim Gombas talked about this months ago. And so we have been uh, joyfully anticipating a conversa- this conversation. And so, uh, and she's given us, <clears throat> excuse me, permission to just call her Beth. So Beth, welcome yes. to the podcast. Thank you for taking time. And uh, she informed us she is recovering from COVID. So <laughs> that's, that's how much she's committed to this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. And then we found out that we were number 106 out of 127 um, and realized, okay, so maybe we're not that special, but uh, we're still very excited to have this conversation. So um, Beth, can we just start and tell us, you know, if you get tired or anything, can we just start talking a little bit just um, autobiographically mm-hmm. about your background? I mean, what was your, what yeah. was your inherited culture? as you uh, as you grew up yeah so i mostly grew up in texas my parents are both texans although um they my dad was a in the military while he was getting his md so we moved mm-hmm. around a lot when i was small but since i was five we lived in um we lived in texas and in fact this morning one of my old old friends sent me a link to my childhood home, which is for sale again. <laughs> so I was looking through that. So anyway, it's not nice. all that far actually from Waco. I grew up outside of Waco, so nice. um, so I'm a I'm a Texan pretty much through and yeah. through, and I grew up in the Baptist church. I grew up in a small town, not all that many church options, but we did have mm. the major, you know, Baptist church on one corner, Methodist church on the other corner. Nice. Um, and so I grew up in the Baptist church, although my father has a lot of Methodist in his background. Um, but we, and it, and I ended up marrying a Baptist minister. So you can say that that <laughs> very much is in my wow. blood. Yeah. Um, so this really is my world. I grew up yeah. in small town evangelical Christianity. Yeah. And um, it is not just the the faith that I grew up in, the faith tradition that I grew up in, but it is also sort of in, in the air that I breathed um, yeah. all around me. And even now I'm at a Baptist university. <laughs> totally. So, totally. What was still in what, the air? What were the messages that you received about womanhood uh, and uh biblical womanhood and sexuality yeah. and all of those sorts of things. I mean, we could Im- yeah. imagine, but you go into them a bit in the book and they're, you know, when you're reading them, you're just sh- kind of shocked by, wow, th- these are things we actually say. Oh yeah. No. So, um, you know, what's now that I've had some reflection and have thought back on it, I now realize that I was at the very sort of beginning of what I would call the hard line turn towards gender roles in evangelicalism. And this is really sort of like the rise of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the rise of the people who eventually join with the Gospel Coalition, um, and the beginning of what becomes recovering biblical manhood and womanhood with John Piper and Wayne Grudem. So, um, So I entered high school at the very end of the 80s. And this was right after, as I said, the CBMW was formed. Yep. I didn't know any of this at the time. Um, but what I remember is very early on in my high school career, I we had a Disciple Now weekend for our church, mm-hmm. which I think was one of the first sort of, or the beginning, the prototype of the True Love Weight conferences. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and so I, I wish I knew what the curriculum was, but it was very, very <laughs> early on in that. And it was the first time that I really remember hearing 
um, these ideas that mm. women are their primary calling is to be in the home and to be uh, under male headship. And what was interesting, even though this is the first time I really clearly, you know, heard that articulated, um, it made sense in my world because I lived in a world where there were a lot of stay-at-home moms. And, mm -hmm. you know, VBS ran at our church in the morning because all of the stay-at-home moms were able to do it between, you know, 8 and 12 in the morning. Um and so it was something, even though there were working moms, um, the ideal often seemed to be, as I said, you know, it was one of those things where um, somebody said recently they'd never heard their husband introduced as a working dad. Mm. Um, but, you know, the way Bam. women were introduced, yeah, you know, my friends would say, oh, my mom's a working mom and right. things like that. And so clearly, I mean, that's indicating that there is something anomalous about that. Um, so I grew up in a world where these gender roles were sort of accepted and it was really now I know was sort of Southern tradition, Southern mm -hmm. culture, but what we see begin to happen in the late eighties and early nineties is it becomes imbued yeah. with Christianity, with sort of this idea right. that not only is this what we do, this is what we should do as Christian women. That's right. That's right. And so as I moved through my high school years and into college, those were the messages I got that as Christian women, this is what we aspire to, and it's under male head. It's following male headship, yeah. And it is prioritizing the home and yeah. family. Now, even though that was what you had grown up in, um, from your story, you were pursuing graduate degrees mm -hmm. and professorship, and so how how were you able to kind of reconcile that? Yeah. Before you know, the light bulb sort of went on. Um, in, I think it was 2018. Um, well, yeah, so it was a gradual yeah. progression in my life. But um, so, you know, part of this, I, I think a lot of it is my family. My uh, family has a very strong work ethic. And even though my mom, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but part of that was because she was married. She and my dad actually met in medical school. And um, my dad was in residency when she had, you know, four children in under seven years. And so, I mean, some of that was just simply, and in, in the seventies and early eighties, when she was having children, um, it was hard for women to work outside the home. This is right after they defeated the ERA. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. There is childcare is very expensive, especially yeah. for babies. I mean, it's just really, it was really hard for working yeah. women yeah. Um, when they had that many children. And so there were lots of, you know, but, that didn't keep her from um, emphasizing the importance of, of a vocation hmm. uh, for her children. And I'm one of three, I have three, I have two sisters and a brother, and all of us have advanced degrees. Um, and all of us, you know, are, uh, anyway, are, all of us work. Um, yeah. So my sisters as well as myself. And so we had, we had this in our family was mm. I think was this really strong work work ethic. And because these messages in the church didn't really start hitting me until, you know, as I said, it was in high school and going into college, um, I didn't really make a connection. It was sort of like this idea that as long as you put your family first, you can mm. still work. 
you know, it's more that priority sort of thing that you do. And if you look at sort of the evolution of these ideas, it's not really until the early 2000s that we start getting these messages from people like John Piper and Mark Driscoll that start saying that women not only should put family and home first, but that they shouldn't work outside the home. We start seeing this sort of fringe movement before this had been sort of a fringe movement with Bill Gothard, et cetera, you know, that said women really should stay only in the home. And what we begin to see in the early 2000s, it begins to infiltrate into more mainstream um, evangelical Christianity. And so I kind of was on the leading edge of that where I wasn't getting All of those messages were starting to come to me sort of like after I'd already started doing things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was already in graduate school when these messages start becoming harder that women really shouldn't even work at all. So if that's helpful. Absolutely. And and is that when the the cognitive dissidents started pressing you to ask questions about some of that inherited culture or was it something else? Yeah, no, it was. It was because my husband, I was at, um, you know, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in medieval and women's studies program. Um, <laughs> and, so awesome. you know, I mean, yeah, I know. And my husband was at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary oh my goodness. at the yeah. height of Paige Patterson. And we didn't really think about it before he, I mean, he was just going to a seminary, Baptist seminary um, yeah. that was near where I was getting my PhD. But when he got there, um, you know, it immediately became clear that there was um, that what I was doing was not something that was accepted or uh, really approved of by a lot of the people that he was in seminary with. And so both of us began to feel this kind of disconnect um, where he would have to, you know, explain why I was doing what I was doing. And I would often um, sometimes hide what I was doing. You know, if people asked, I just wouldn't mention what I was doing or I wouldn't mention the name. You know, I would say I was in school and some people would just assume that I was like, you know, at seminary or doing something like that. And so I just wouldn't tell them I was in a PhD program at Chapel Hill. So um, so we begin to feel that pressure pretty early on. And this Mm -hmm. was early days of our marriage. We got married 10 days before we started grad school. So this was also like at the very beginning of our marriage and ministry together, um, where we start having, as you put this cognitive dissonance um, between what we felt God called us to do Mm -hmm. and what evangelical culture was pressuring us to do. Yeah. And when when was it, you highlight Romans 16 as kind of a a turning point. can you tell us just a little bit about that? Because what I'm fishing for is uh, there's the dissidence is one thing that kind of presses us into, hey, is this mm-hmm. is this inherited culture really true? But when when it like when was the first click that said, yeah. oh, maybe m- maybe we've made this up? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, well, it was long before Romans 16. Okay. It was when I was in. I, I mean, I very clearly remember the moment because, and you know, as I said. When I first began to hear these these very clear messages about male headship and that women's priority was family and home, um, it kind of made sense in the world that I grew up in because, yeah. you know, as I, it, it made sense totally. with the Southern culture I was in. Um, but then as I moved to graduate school and these messages started getting harder, um, I also, and I started realizing like, you know, very early on, one of the first papers my husband wrote at seminary 
um, was on female ordination, actually. I mean, this is when oh, we wow. still accepted the idea of male headship. And the reason he did it was because one of his friends um, was a woman. She was working on a chaplaincy degree. She worked at a church. Um, and he found out that she was unable to get the scholarship that he was able to get, mm. even though she was Baptist working at a church. And the reason was, is because she wasn't ordained. Mm. And he was like, so she was paying more for school, even though she was doing everything exactly the same as him, simply because she wasn't ordained. And the reason she wasn't ordained was because yeah. she was Southern Baptist. They wouldn't ordain her. Yeah. And so he wrote a paper not advocating for women to be able to preach or you know be in the pulpit like men, but simply advocating for female ordination wow. so that they because of the economic disparity that it created. Yeah. And so, you know, that was one of, you know, it was sort of was mm -hmm. like, why are we creating these arbitrary rules? I mean, where does this come into the Bible that women, um, mi women's ministry can't be recognized? Right. And which is kind of what ordination does. Mm -hmm. And so that very early on, and at the same time, as I said, I was in these women's studies courses. And I was in sort of a broad um, based women's studies course where we kind of read across the global world. Um, the professor teaching it was a medievalist. So we started early and read throughout. And, and so we read all over the place. And one of the um, things that I began to think about in that class was how the lessons that we were being taught about what women should be mm -hmm. in the Christian church were the same lessons that were being taught to women in the ancient world outside of Christian cultures that were being taught to women in the Islamic world that were being taught. And it just, it struck to me, I was like, why are Christians treating women exactly the same as all of these non-Christian mm -hmm. cultures? Mm -hmm. I mean, that really was the first mm. time that I was like, what what is this is yeah. you know what what is coming first is this because christianity somehow has influenced the christian god has somehow influenced all of these other areas or is it because the world and the way the world does things is influencing the church come on and so that was when i began to first ask those questions was in my women's history seminar and and one of the things that is fascinating that you get into um, is that is that difference that that like we can read some of the traditional understandings mm -hmm. of household codes or Paul's teaching, and set it up next to ancient uh, writers and go, yeah, there's absolutely no difference exactly uh, here, uh, <laughs> which which is like okay, so so one of the things that's the biggest <laughs> gift to uh, I think the the wider conversation is the idea that biblical womanhood there's no such thing that 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 is a construct uh, exactly that doesn't challenge culture but just reflects fallen culture mm -hmm. yep um how did how uh, what what was that like discerning that like um <laughs> what were what were i mean the book does such a great job and i don't want to rob anyone from reading the book but what were some of the milestones as you were w treading that ground and realizing oh my goodness this you know th there biblical yeah. womanhood isn't a thing what were some of the yeah. things, particularly as a historian, that you were noting um, that were that were kind of raising this up? So, you know, the irony of it is I think if we had been in a church like what we had grown up in, I mean, the church that we were in was becoming progressively more hardline on this issue mm. while we were there. You know, it didn't start off that way when we started in ministry. Um 
but it became progressively more. And so I think if we'd actually been in a church that um, had, you know, still supported complementarianism, but had been sort of um, light handed about it, that, you know, was sort of like, oh, it just means women can't, you know, preach yeah. from the pulpit and stuff. I don't know if I would have started questioning it mm. as much because it wouldn't have, you know, I don't think I would have seen the impact of it as much. Um, and so, really, this was the being in a church that was becoming more and more hard line yeah. on women not being able to be on the stage, women not being able to pray in public, women not being able to teach, you know, Sunday school classes, you know, having the pastor come in and check when I was um, teaching a class on church history in front of, you know, uh, men would be in the room. He came and checked my notes to make sure I wasn't talking about the Bible, you know, and those things like that you know they were sitting it's like this is this is weird this is weird <laughs> and it's especially weird when you're a woman's history professor and you're teaching women in the ancient world which includes women in the early church and however you write it you know phoebe was teaching the bible yeah <laughs> you know she's reading paul's letter i mean that's just simply a historical fact that you can't get around mm -hmm. you can call her a servant you can try to pretend that maybe she's not a messenger like the other messengers that maybe she just carried the bible and actually didn't read the read the text you know which there's no evidence at all that she would have been any different than any of the other ones who are carrying the letters um you know you can do all sorts of things to try to write women out of what they're doing in the Bible, but at the end of the day, I mean, what do you do with Holda? What do you do with mm -hmm. Deborah? Mm -hmm. um, you can't really write them out of the scripture. And but, yet, but, but I was we've in, tried, right? We tried. We have tried really hard. Um, but you know, I guess as a historian, I mean, that's one of the things is that I knew, I knew that regardless of what language we used about women or tried to describe them, I knew what those women were doing. Mm -hmm. I knew the scholarship, you know, as I said, I, I've told this, to, you know, to more than one person, in some ways, my book really shouldn't be necessary, mm -hmm. because there is so much scholarship that has been around for decades, which shows that women have been preaching and teaching and recognized in ministry mm -hmm. um, throughout church history, and that women's roles in the Bible are also, you know, doing the same thing as men, and that Jesus's response to women in the Bible um, is always, you know, it is never supporting patriarchal structures. I mean, right. Jesus never supports patriarchal structures. I mean, even oh. in the Old Testament, we God. All, you know, is often lifting women out of the impact of patriarchal structures. Um, and so it's like, how are we how are we in a church system that is that is re not only enforcing patriarchal structures, but in making them harder and more yeah. rigid for women in ways that are not reflected in church history? And or anyway, not always reflected, as I said, right. patriarchy's in church history, but nonetheless, but certainly not reflected in the Bible. Yeah. And so those, I think, you know, I think as our church became harder, I began mm -hmm. to realize the cracks in biblical womanhood yeah. um, in ways that I might not have 
if I had been in a church that really was like women can do everything but be the senior pastor, which is yeah. also a stupid thing because there's no senior pastor in the Bible. Right. <laughs> you will not find that role right. uh, or any, even an equivalent role in the Bible as much right. as we might try to. You're, oh, totally. you're not going to find it. One of the interesting bits along those lines is how um, certain translations yes. have worked to obscure yeah. some Phoebe's role or Junia. Uh, you want to oh, get yeah. into that just a little bit yes. in terms of so, yes, there are there that, are agendas behind tr uh, translations. That actually was one of the most surprising things to me about writing this book. Hmm was how much people didn't realize this about English Bible translations. You know, in some ways, uh, chapter five, it was the first chapter I wrote. I mm. wrote it while I was teaching that semester because I was teaching my women's history class. And I actually have a whole thing on Bible translations where we look at the impact of the early modern English Bible mm. and um, how it is connected to early modern English culture and translating those ideas. I mean, this is something I talk about in all my classrooms. Um, and so it's a very common very common idea. And it means very common knowledge, let's say in the scholarly world. But I'm always struck by how my students are always surprised by it. Um, yes. This is what, you know, they're always surprised by it. And so um, it, you know, for, and for the, you know, I talking with my students, we often talk about the King James Bible. And so that's, you know, and mostly with it, what we see with the King James and these early modern English translations is that they use very androcentric language, which is male-centered language. So we see them write out places where it would have said brothers and sisters, where we see, you know, medieval sermons saying good men and women and putting that, you know, putting that in. We see the early modern English Bibles, the KJV, you know, writing brothers. Mm -hmm. and writing men and all male pronouns. Um, and so we see this, and this is also a time when the English language is becoming much more androcentric as it becomes legal. We mm -hmm. see the same thing going on in the legal processes. Um, so that's what we focus on in my class is showing how this language, which is then put into a room where all the translators are men, um, all of them are highly, um, you know, are educated men, yeah. and um, they're only talking to other men. And so they write a Bible for men, you know, by yep. men for men about men. Um, <laughs> and then what? And then what? We, if we take that and fast forward to the the twentieth century, what we find with the ESV is that pretty much exactly the same thing happened, except for, this is what I think is the difference, is that I think these early modern English translators, um, I don't know, I think they were just going along with their world. I mean, I don't think they were intentionally writing women out of the Bible. Um, I think they were intentionally making choices about marriage, the way they applied the word marriage, yeah. um, because, yeah. you know, it just didn't do to talk about these women who were sleeping with men who weren't married um, right. and it was being okay. So, you know, even though there's no marriage ceremony um, for Rachel and Jacob, you know, it's they're married. Okay. Right, they go into right. the, there's marriage. It's all a wedding, et cetera. So they have to make that pretty. Mm. Um, but the ESV, the whole reason the ESV was born yep. was because they were afraid of gender-inclusive language. Yeah, in the NIV, so, yep. 
in the NIV, yeah, and um, with the TNIV, and then they also were unhappy with the Revised Standard Version hmm. because it translated. This was a whole controversy before that in the seventies. It translated um, Mary as a young woman instead of specifically saying virgin, mm-hmm. and of course. The reality is that's actually what the text says, um, and that the word implies not married, which implies virgin, um, even if it doesn't say. So, it was really just standardizing to what the text actually said, but conservatives like blew up and said that they were saying they were denying the virgin birth, which was, you know, completely out of context. So, they were also upset with the RSV over that, Mm. Um, but they were really upset with the TNIV with this influence of what they call gender-inclusive language. Mm-hmm. And so they they planned the ESV, which took the RSV. It's about 90 to 95% the RSV. And the places where they changed it um, are not completely, but significantly areas that are used to enforce male headship and enforce female subordination. Yeah. And they actually say that. They say that it is unapologetically complementarian mm-hmm. and that their their goal was to help emphasize the God's beautiful design. That's not the word they say, but that's kind of, you know, of complementarity right. um, between women and men. And so that was that was the plan behind what they were doing, and they were incredibly successful. Um, and so I'm I think they all hate me right now, but I'm kind of not sad. <laughs> <laughs> that people are re-examining, at least going to their ESV with eyes wide open. Um, Absolutely. I remember yeah. ESV came out, Scott McKnight, who is um, an egalitarian <laughs> scholar, just went, Yeah. this thing is absolutely corrupt in a couple of uh, instances where yeah. the agenda, uh, and I'm not saying uh, uh, every other interpretation is free from agenda. It's just that in this case, there was a very, and, and they were upfront about it. And um, the thing that's striking, though, is so so one of the arguments is that biblical womanhood is actually just a construct. And and you can trace from uh, ancient Rome and how ancient Rome treated women and and how they restricted their freedoms into the medieval period, which is utterly fascinating, into the Reformation and how the ideal sort of Christian woman Mm -hmm. changed from somebody who was chaste and avoided sexuality to now becoming somebody who right. was married uh, and had a family and was you know kind of governing the household. I mean, that's such exactly. a huge shift. Yep. Um, in the idea of what biblical womanhood mm-hmm. is, uh, the Reformation was good news for a lot of people, but not women. I'd love to hear well, you talk a little bit more about. I'll that. qualify that. You know, I you know it's funny because I have all these. The Reformation chapter is probably the one I sweated over the most. Mm. Um, you know, the the Paul chapter I knew I was going to get. I did sweat over it a lot, and I sent it out to a lot of people, and I got a biblical scholar <laughs> to read it before because I was like, ah, you know, I'm really – and I also in the Paul chapter um, – you know, I framed a lot of it as questions, yeah. like, you know, let's just, let's look, look can we look at this differently? Right. Um, the Reformation chapter really is probably the one I sweated over the most. And in mm-hmm. fact, I sent it, I sent it to a, another scholar and I was like, just help me because I'm, you know, I know, I know the scholarly debates that I am wading into with <laughs> this chapter. Um, and, and I, and I'm having to paint a broad brush and so I was just like, help me make sure that I 
said everything, you know, correctly, at least from this broad brush level. And so it was, you know, I was very grateful to friends who helped me out with that. Um, but so the, ref the, the Reformation, the point of the Reformation chapter wasn't so much that the Reformation was bad for women, because, you know, you have to think, we think about this as, um, uh, you know, we talk about this a lot in women's history, that uh, there is, that women Sometimes women are better off in some circumstances, but that often means that women in different circumstances are worse off. Mm. And so it's mm. not that it's kind of like women, there's a equilibrium mm. where women always remain under male authority. And some women are maybe a little bit better along that, that whereas other women are a little worse off, um, yeah. but they're, they're never that makes sense. They're never That's equal. To, does that make sense? So uh, it's absolutely. not that it's, yeah. So it's not that it was worse. It was, mm -hmm. it rate, it elevated women as wives. I mean, this is actually a really good thing. You know, the medieval world um, didn't elevate women as wives. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we know, you know, spiritually speaking, um, the worst thing you could be spiritually speaking was a, was a sexually active woman. Yeah. And so women who were married, even though children was a good thing, um, it but wasn't the best thing a woman could do. Them, right. Yeah. But it was <clears throat> but it wasn't the best thing a woman could do. The mm. best thing a woman could do was to be uh, was to not be sexually active, either as a widow who had committed herself to following God or as somebody committed to the church. And so in the Reformation did elevate that role of women in a mm. in a in a way that helped a lot of women. But at the same time, it limited women's opportunities. Whereas in the medieval world, there was a variety of things huh. that a woman could be um, to be a godly woman. I mean, even as a wife, you still could, there are things you could do to be a godly woman, even within that confine. Um, but after the Reformation for Protestant women, really the best thing, the, the way to be a godly woman was to be yeah. becoming a wife and a mother That's right. and remaining well, a wife and a mother. And that so, anecdote about how Reformation churches changed the seating yeah, arrangements, that is yes. so, so before the Reformation, men and women would sit separately across from each yep. other. Yep. And uh, during and after, the women would sit with the men as kind of a visible sign of their belonging to the man who defined family. Kind of that family. Yep. I mean, it is, <clears throat> yeah, it's striking. It really is, and, and, it, and it, so it helps paint the picture that is the great gift, I think, of your work, mm -hmm. which is there is no biblical womanhood. That, right. any, any, that, is forcing, that is forcing something on the text. And in this case, in our time period, <clears throat> it's forcing the exact same patriarchy that has existed at all times everywhere exactly. back on the text. How did it... It, because your subtitle, your subtitle is just—it's—it's it's so juicy. Um, how the subjugation of women became gospel truth. So there's one thing to say—it's—it's it's one thing to say yes, we think the Bible teaches these gender roles. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to elevate that position, right? To be of like most a doctrinal importance. Like when you go on certain yep. websites, it's like this is a gospel issue. Yep. That's how exactly did that right. happen? Gosh, yeah, that's the part, you know, um, on the one hand, I do think that reading texts that emphasize reading the Bible to emphasize male um, 
authority and to push women out of leadership positions in the church, I do think that's an, not an accurate reading of the Bible. At the same time, however, I understand how people can get there, and mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not really going to go around and try to talk people out of that. What I am going to stand firm on, though, is that however you stand on women's issues, it is not part of the gospel. I mean, that just simply is, it is not part of the gospel. And that is what has happened, yeah. is that in the modern evangelical church, um, complementarians um, argue that the only correct way to read the Bible is to read male headship and female subjection. And anybody who reads it differently, while they still might be Christian, it yeah. leads them on the slippery slope away from the faith. Yeah. And so it is dangerous oh, to on. even it is dangerous to even hear a woman preach. I mean, think about okay. Russell Moore's article in 2006, which yep. I think he has repented of since then. But nonetheless, where he said Beth Moore was essentially a gateway drug um, <laughs> away from evangelicalism, you know, away wow. from the faith, because it leads people down that slippery slope um, from not being faithful to the text. Yeah. And so this came from, I mean, you know, it's like, how, where did we get this? Um, it certainly comes from um, inerrancy, the concept of inerrancy, which a lot of people get really upset about. And yep. people all the time, you know, I'll have people all the time who will just send me, they'll send me messages and they'll say, okay, I, I totally get, I understand what you're saying and everything. But before I can follow you, tell me, are you an inerrantist? Right. And I'm like, that's the wrong question. Come on. Because inerrancy <clears throat> is not about reading the Bible. You know, we think inerrancy is about being faithful to the scripture. But what inerrancy really is about is about reading the Bible the way a certain group of white men told us to read the Bible. Totally. I mean, that's really what it is. And um, inerrancy has nothing to do. I'm sorry. Maybe it's my medicine. No, <laughs> I, I love things. it. <clears throat> Um, but if you look at the history, I mean, that's inerrancy isn't about being faithful to the Bible. And mm. so the way I have, I just don't respond to that question anymore. I say, I'm yeah. faithful to the Bible. I'm a yeah. faithful Christian and I believe in the Bible. So if you're asking me if I believe, yes, yeah. but I'm not going to answer your inerrancy question because um, it is a litmus test. And it is a litmus test that I believe was born in the gender wars. Yeah. Yeah, um, that, that, oh, yeah. Oh, hold on a second. So, yeah, oh, that's interesting. We've talked. We we just had an episode, a whole episode on how inerrancy is the wrong question to ask of the text. Oh, good. Who did you have that with? Just us. My, yeah, <laughs> these two clowns. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I want to listen to that. I didn't know you had that. Only, I was playing right into what you said. Oh my goodness, yes, we've done this like multi, like part series on the Bible, and we were talking about how inerrancy just. How how is a poem inerrant in any you know meaningful sense of the word? But but that that extra step, Beth, that you just took, <laughs> that inerrancy was born out of the gender wars. Can you can yep. you give like just a, another couple sentences on that? Because oh sure that that I had I thought it was born the way I'd always understood it was it, particularly in the seventies. It was it was a reflection of the concern um, with you know critical scholarship from Europe and mm -hmm. yeah. the the literary criticism and methods that was that were being used and so inerrancy became the sort of bulwark against well they say it has mistakes we say it doesn't um, but I'd never thought to frame it in terms of gender wars I'd love just if you wouldn't mind just oh, taking yeah. us down that rabbit hole a second 
Yeah, no, and I'm not the only I'm not the only scholar to assert that. You know, there are, there is a scholarly argument, you know, about about mm-hmm. this, like which mm-hmm. came first, inerrancy or um, or huh. you know, complementarianism. Wow. Um, and so there is this, but Kristen Dumay, this is one of the things mm-hmm. that she also in Jesus and John Wayne, um, where she also you know believes that inerrancy that was part of the gender wars, and so it's also part of racism of the mm. racial structures. You know, it's born in the early 20th century. It is a reaction to German higher criticism, which did go too far. I mean, you know, they sort of like people who get on the deconstruction train. You know, yeah. my graduate students just read Judith Butler yesterday. I don't know if you know who Judith mm-hmm. Butler is, but essentially she argues that everything, that all gender is performative and that re- essentially nothing really nothing really exists. Everything is performative. And so it's like, that's a really fun thing to talk about, but we're all really sitting in chairs, you know? And so you can't really deconstruct (laughs) the chairs that we're sitting on. So, you know, German higher criticism was kind of like that. It kind of got on this, you know, sort of like nothing was real Mm -hmm. um, in the Bible and everybody freaked out because this is also the same time as the Darwinian theory Mm. um, about evolution, which provides an alternative vision. Yeah. Um, to to where the world came from. So people do freak out and there does begin to be an emphasis. It's like, you know, the Bible is literally true. Everything about it has to be literally true. But the same people who came up with that sort of idea and begin to defend that very rigid understanding of biblical text were also defending, um, um, you know, were also defending the hierarchy yep. between white men and black people, you know, sort of this idea that there is, um, that there should still be segregation, that there still should be, you know, that there is something inherently um, about black people that requires them to be under um, authority of white people, which they read from the household codes. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, that there is also that women cannot be spiritual leaders over men. And so these are all within that same group of people that begin this very literal understanding of the Bible. Um, We also know that in the early part, you know, if you think about in the 19th and the early 20th century, there's actually a lot of preaching women running around out there. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also think about, you know, the beginning of the the Pentecostal movement. Oh, yeah, the revivalists, totally. There's a lot of black women preachers actually running around out there. Um, And so they're um, in in the in the with the movement of inerrancy with emphasis on inerrancy what we also begin to see is this emphasis that women should not be in these roles Mm -hmm. and this beginning to push women this is sort of in some ways um an early push pushing women out of um out of the pulpit um in the early part of the 20th century got it got it and this and then this comes up again in the 1970s exactly the same thing where we begin to see a rise of women um, getting ordained, women moving into these um, pastorates. And this is again when we see this emphasis on inerrancy, which is pulled up one and more time as a trump yeah. card. It's yeah. weaponized to keep women from moving into male roles within the church, male jobs within the church. Dang. And that was more than two sentences. I'm so sorry. That's, oh, that's awesome. Stafford, how do you hear mm-hmm. that? Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense because the things that popped in my head were with the with the race issues, it's obviously like the slave Bible, different things that were like ordained, so to speak, right. and given to help keep hierarchical compartments built. 
And that was like something that yep. Christians would do and say, this is okay. Cause we need the people to understand that they are less than, and that becomes yeah. part of the Christian culture. And then as you're going through that time period, I was trying, I don't want to say it out loud cause I don't have the timeline perfect in my head, but when I'm thinking through all the different feminist movements of those all line up exactly where, if I'm correct, right? Like, yes. So that yes. makes so, sense as a reactionary thing to what's happening in culture to, to try to subjugate women further within each of those. So Beverly Gaventa, who's one of my favorite um, yeah. Pauline scholars, and she made this wonderful statement that I haven't investigated either, but she thinks, she says it's her gut that the English Bible translations at the end of the 19th century, because if you actually look at the timeline, um, when like Junia in um, Romans 16, who yeah. begins to be translated as Junius, um, mm. because how could a woman be an apostle? Right. And so they begin to translate her with a masculine name. That starts at the time of the suffrage movement at yep. the end of the 19th century. And oh, Beverly Gaventa hypothesized that those were connected. And yeah, I think I mean, she's probably right. Yeah, all yeah. the eras that you just went through are all different, mm -hmm. the different eras of feminism. So that those yep. line up whether it's coincidental or not those line up and that's first second yeah. third wave yep um <laughs> yeah. dang you know beth just a couple more questions if this is you with covid i cannot imagine you at full strength because <laughs> you are a dynamo <laughs> this is awesome i feel <laughs> yeah well i don't know i'm i, I certainly don't it. feel like i'm at my full um, I did put lipstick on for y'all, though, because I saw myself in my Zoom <laughs> seminar yesterday with my students, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I look like I'm dead. Yeah, so. we don't. This is not a video <laughs> video cast, so we're all safe. Um, what would you say to the young lady who is, uh, you know, older high school, beginning college, who's been raised in the same environment you were raised in, who genuinely, desperately wants to honor God? and follow mm -hmm. Jesus and take the Bible seriously, but has been told like you were mm -hmm. that this is a gospel issue and that this is, uh, that th right. these are hardened. This is how you as a woman honor God. Right. Where, where would you point her, uh, to start? Mm -hmm. So, um, I have a, I know a lot of those women. I bet. Um, I, I bet. was one. I'm really glad my daughter will not be one. Um, <laughs> Yep. If you think I'm a dynamo, you should see my daughter. Oh, um, that's good. That's good parenting. She's only 11, too. So, oh! Um, yeah, it's, it's something else. But so I would very gently um, ask, you know, there's really two questions here. The first of all, where do you get the ideas from that women are not supposed to be leaders in the church? And, you know, pretty much that answer is the Pauline texts of terror, you know, yeah. which we can yeah. count on our yeah. fingers. Yeah. And so then the second question I ask is like, okay, so how do we reconcile those texts with the rest of Paul's message? Mm -hmm. You know, what if, and so that usually is, it's like, let's take those texts and let's go to Romans 16 and let's read through Romans 16. And the problem is, is that after you read through Romans 16 and you see that women, a woman is a disciple and you see a woman is a apostle and you see women are house church leaders, and you see women um, who are, um, uh, you know, who Paul recognizes as being his co-workers um, and teaching alongside him, 
then what if we go back to those Pauline texts of terror? Hmm. You know, how what are how then, you know, mm-hmm. do we reconcile them with Paul saying women have to be silent for all time? Yeah. Um, either Paul is contradicting himself, which I don't think Paul is, or we've interpreted something wrongly. Yeah. And um, and that usually is a starting place. You know, another text that I've often done is I've taken them um, to Martha, and Martha is a lot of fun because Martha in the medieval world is a preaching dragon slayer who converts France along with Mary Magdalene. Oh yeah, she's a wonderful story. Wow. And in our world, she is an irritated domestic hostess. Totally. Who gets upset because <clears throat> nobody's helping her change the bed linens, right? <laughs> so I asked them, I'm like, where did we get these where do we get these ideas from? Hmm. And if we look at the text of Martha, what we find is the word that is used to describe her is the same word that's used to describe the ministry of the disciples. Hmm. Um, she's described hmm. as doing um, as being a deacon, as doing mm. the deaconate work, ministry. Mm. Um, there is, you know, there is the only in, the only reason we think Martha is a frustrated hostess is because number one, Jesus goes to her home, mm-hmm. and number two, because in in Luke we see her standing back over um, while Jesus is eating at their house, mm-hmm. which is where she's sort of fulfilling the role of head of household. Mm which is the same role that men, he, Jesus also eats at men's houses too, you know, mm-hmm, same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else about Martha suggests that she's doing ministry, just mm-hmm. like the like the male disciples. And so, mm-hmm. some just looking at those texts um, help us to see that, help students to see that they have carried preconceptions to the text mm-hmm. and that what women were doing in the biblical world was much more expansive mm-hmm. Than what we have, what we have often decided that they were doing, That's and so, so just so just good. thinking about that yeah. can often help them to realize that they can be faithful because, you know, Martha was this was along with Peter are the only two people in the Bible who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, so I think she was faithful. Come on, <laughs> dang Beth, man, I am so grateful. This is such a fun conversation, and congratulations <laughs> on how well the book's done. Oh, thank you. And how many opportunities you've had to talk about it. Um, that is just fantastic. So thank you for suffering through COVID to, to join us. Where could people find you online? Yeah, um, they can find me on Twitter, for better or for worse, I sometimes tell folk. Um, they can also, <laughs> yeah, they can find me on Instagram, which is much more fun. And they can see pictures of my family and dogs on Instagram. And um, my daughter and son, though, are going through a phase where they don't like me posting pictures of them. Mm. So I don't post as many because, you know, I try I try to be kind to them. Um, but you'll, you'll see, see them sometimes. Sometimes they give me permission. And then you can also find me. I still ride on Patheos on the Anxious Bench. And yeah. so, um, in fact, I just had a piece on the ESV um, oh, just a couple video. of weeks ago nice. that got a lot of attention. So, anyway, so you can find me. Those are places you can find me. Well, Beth, thank you for your time today. We're so honored to meet you and to spotlight some of the work you're doing. So, we appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. 
Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us